Welcome to TV7 Israel's podcast. We invite you to listen and share our latest content from Israel and the region. Hello from Jerusalem. This is Watchmen Talk, a series of conversations with key people in Israel's military, diplomatic, and security fields throughout the year. And our guest is Ephraim Alevi, former Mossad chief, also formerly Israel's ambassador in Brussels to the NATO alliance and to the European Union. A while ago, we had a conversation about Mossad and some of uh, Ephraim Alevi's lessons uh, from uh, almost 40 years of serving the country. And we would like now to go on a tour d'horizon of uh, Israel's uh, strategic um, regional and global map as uh, is seen from Jerusalem or also from Tel Aviv, which is closer to where Mossad is headquartered. Hello, Ephraim. Hello. As we are now uh, speaking um, at the end of the uh, second decade of this uh, century, is Israel is in a better position um, security-wise than it was? Uh, what are the trends if you look ahead? Well, let's say a word about uh, what has changed. Uh, when we became independent, <clears throat> we had a ring of enemies around us. Today, we have two peace agreements which have taken, pla uh, taken place, which were, by the way, uh, uh, sought for many years by Israel, in which the Mossad played a key role in the contacts that were established, and the methods of the contacts that were established, and the final uh, game of bringing a peace treaty. So the South is secure, the East is secure, the North is not secure. Secondly, we have a whole new uh, set of uh, players in the region who are coming to the fore and who preferred to stay in the background for a very long time. This is the second circle which is surrounding us, which are the Gulf states and uh, other countries uh, in which there are Muslim majorities of one kind or another. But one should add that during Ben-Gurion's time and uh, a bit later, he saw this outer ring as perhaps an opportunity for Israel to get away from the encirclement by the core confrontation states. That's true. That is why he went and uh, <clears throat> was very, very uh, uh, anxious to establish a link with Turkey, to establish a link with Iran, and also to establish a, a link in Africa. But uh, this did not, uh, in my view, uh, did not uh, produce a game changer, which was uh, of the kind of a peace treaty. But now we have uh, other players who are coming to the fore who have developed themselves uh, over years in a manner which uh, brings them into the international arena as very, very strong uh, players. I'm speaking about the Gulf states. Uh, I'm speaking about countries like Saudi Arabia, which are both uh, not only a source of petroleum, but also they uh, are big hitters on the international uh, banking scene, in the economic scene, on the uh, world markets, uh, on the uh, uh, stock exchanges, 
on uh, football clubs, you name it, and they are there. This is a relatively new phenomenon. Secondly, we have these states which have a very small and modest uh, number of uh, actual citizens in them. And there are some of the states, especially in the Gulf, where the foreign workers and the foreigners there outnumber the uh, citizens uh, more than by two to one. And this is also something new. And thirdly, we have astute people there who have risen, who have been educated, some of them in the West, who know the rules of the game in every way and in every form. And they are now pulling their weight. Uh, they are a second and third generation to the original rulers in the Middle East, the uh, sons and grandsons of uh, the, those who have uh, uh, created dynasties, uh, whether they are uh, regal dynasties like in Saudi Arabia or in uh, Jordan for one one, th one uh, for two examples, or in the Gulf. But what is the strategic landscape that they are seeing? There is no Cold War anymore. At least what the Soviet Union represented to them as a threat is no longer there, even though Russia is perhaps coming back in other forms. Iraq, uh, which was vanquished under uh, Saddam Hussein, is not such a force, but Iran is. And the United States, at least uh, under the uh, Trump administration, uh, wants to go back to America, to um, fortress America, and perhaps leave these countries um, to uh, their own devices, supply them with arms, but uh, perhaps pull out uh, troops. How does that all uh, count in their calculations? I think that the, um, the countries in the Middle East that I've mentioned just now are realizing that the situation is much more complex. I don't think that the description that uh, President Trump has decided to leave the Middle East is a true description of what he's been doing. A, on the Israeli-Palestinian issue, he's produced a plan. He's produced a plan which uh, at least uh, the Israeli side has uh, considered to be a plan which is uh, uh, worthy of uh, discussion and of negotiation concerning the Palestinian issue, which include, by the way, the uh, creation of a Palestinian state. C B, from the Israeli point of view, the fact that the United States has taken such a position is not only that the United States supports Israel, like supporting Jerusalem as the capital of the city, like supporting the ultimate annexation of the Golan Heights and similar matters, but it's also a, uh, a plan which includes items which, on the face of it, are not uh, desirable to Israel. The present uh, leadership in Israel is trying to belittle these uh, items which are uh, uh, unpalatable to it. But I think they are making a disservice to themselves, and if I may say so, also a disservice to the uh, population, the people of Israel. The people of Israel understand that basically speaking, the leadership in Israel has accepted A, the two-state solution, and B, it's accepted the fact that uh, uh, when it comes to uh, providing arms and so forth in the Middle East, there are other players who could get uh, very advanced weaponry, which Israel might not be too uh, anxious to allow them to receive, and that Israel would not be able ultimately to prevent this from happening. So the picture is much more complex And I think that when you look at the Gulf and you look at the way they have developed in many ways and you see each ruler, whether it's the Qataris in the north who we haven't been talking very much 
about, well, I'll say something about them. Please do. But, uh, uh, and you have the uh, United, Emir, uh, 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 United uh, uh, Arab Emirates, UAE, and you have Saudi Arabia. You have uh, shades of different types. They're not just one uh, type of typography that is uh, uh, cut and paste when it comes to seeing how the Gulf states are and what they are. You speak out of personal experience too. You've met some of these guys more than 20 years ago, haven't you? I first uh, came to the Gulf in 1975. I met uh, the, uh, the then ruler, who was then a young ruler in Oberman, uh, in Salala, which was a small little townlet on the uh, border between uh, Oman and what was then the People's Republic of South Yemen. I met him at his command post. And uh, uh, from then on, we had a very interesting relationship. I was not the first Israeli to meet him, not the first Mossad person. You mistook him for a Jew, for a Yemenite Jew? No, I did not at all. I took him for what he was, a very, very astute and a very, very courageous young leader. And uh, I also understood that we had to talk to the, uh, to the uh, states, not only in terms of military and strategic uh, um, support and advice, but also to look at the serious problems they have and see whether we could help them on that. And then one of the major problems that Oman then had was a shortage of water. There was a seepage of the uh, water shelf uh, from the uh, Gulf into Oman, which threatened the water wells of Oman. And the solution to that, of course, was desalinization of water. Uh, I was able to uh, uh, prevail and to... Uh, received the support of my division chief, uh, who was then Nahum Admoni, who later became head of Mossad, and I succeeded him uh, uh, by two. And uh, we were able to send a leading water desalination expert to Oman in the 70s, which changed the uh, future of Oman in terms of water. And this, of course, had a major effect on the, the stability of the country. One should perhaps uh, mention that it was in the early 70s, after the um, British uh, have adopted the policy of uh, east of Suez going back uh, home, that these so-called trucial states became the Emirates and Bahrain got its independence and, and some of uh, the others, which was in a way um, or enabled you to be present at the creation and help some of these countries stand on their feet. Yes. Yes. And uh, <clears throat> it was us. I was one of those who was involved, not the only person involved. But at one time I was deputy head of the division. Then I became head of the division later on. Uh, and I think that we were able to, to uh, capture the spirit of what might happen. We were not able to uh, forecast in greater detail what would happen. But we knew in what direction this was going. Now I want to, to, to emphasize that it's not only the states which are now being discussed in recent months uh, in which have normalized their relations with Israel. By the way, normalized with them. We do not have new peace treaties with them. Uh, we have not traded peace for peace, as my prime minister would say, because peace for peace means to say you got something for nothing. And the, uh, the Gulf states are great experts in never giving something for nothing. And I think that is the way things should be. But I think that we are seeing various shades of what is going on. We have Qatar in the north, for instance, which is much closer geographically to Iran. 
Qatar, which has its relations with the uh, with the uh, Iranians, Qatar, which has its relations with Turkey, which is a, uh, a stormy petrol of its own in the Middle East, and we have relations with Qatar. And Qatar, Qatar has relations with Hamas in Gaza. Not only relations, Qatar is are the uh, as we speak, those who. Uh, send them in, in monthly money bags to distribute to the population. Qatar is securing the existence of the Hamas leadership in Gaza. And there is talk all the time of uh, an Israeli uh, negotiation, indirect, through the Egyptians, through the Qataris, through this, that, the other, to reach a, a more uh, permanent settlement of the Gaza issue. So we have Qatar in the north, we have UAE on the south, And we also have two major powers together with the United States, not only Moscow, but also China, which are paying, uh, playing an ever greater role in the Middle East. Uh, I remind you that China now has a military post in Djibouti. Djibouti is not far from the Middle East. It's right on the s southern tip, on the eastern t uh, shores of the African continent. Horn of Africa. Horn of Africa. I think these are very important developments, which we're all looking at. Ephraim Levy, you have some 65 years of various varied experience as a student leader, as uh, a member of a cabinet minister's uh, staff, and then, of course, um, uh, both in Mossad, the uh, Foreign Service, and the National Security Council, which you headed under Prime Minister Sharon. And now for the last 17 years, presumably you are invited uh, for briefings from time to time, but you are not piped in to current intelligence on a daily basis. Is that um, a true reflection of uh, the way? I think I'm not piped uh, on the end of anything intelligence-wise in any way. I don't, I don't, <clears throat> I believe that it serves the interests of both incumbent heads of Mossad, and I remember how it was when I was head of Mossad, uh, to uh, realize that uh, once you leave the Mossad, you uh, are a free citizen, except for guarding the Mossad secrets as far as they can be guarded. So that's the basis of, of the next question. There is uh, this uh, motto, commercial motto, um, An educated consumer is our best customer. An educated citizen in Israel or around the world following the news, uh, perhaps with some basis, uh, you were uh, educated at uh, university and you wrote yourself, you edited um, a periodical um, dedicated to, to foreign affairs, but just a regular uh, citizen when he uh, consumes the, the news, how much does he miss? When you were in on the know uh, and you had access to all classified material, what was the delta? How much did you know more than the regular citizen? So that one, when one now watches the news or reads the newspapers, how much does one miss? I think there's a very big delta. And I don't think that intelligence, which is uh, qualitative intelligence, which is strategic intelligence, has to be uh, shared uh, beyond a certain pale. I do think that it is important there should be a group of people, not one. We had a committee of heads of services, 
uh, which I chaired. Uh, traditionally, the head of Mossad was chairman of the committee. Along with military intelligence and, and Shabak, the internal security service. security, yes. And we discussed many issues at the time. And the, uh, the chairmanship was al always the Mossad. I don't know why. Maybe I do know why, but that's not the important thing at the moment. Uh, I think that uh, there has to be a big delta between that and the public. But I think it is a big mistake when you engage in secret uh, operations and intelligence and in secret strategic discussions on a one-on-one -on -one basis at the top level without involving those who should be around. You mean the prime minister and the Mossad chief uh, who works directly for him? Yes, I think that there has to be a cabinet. There has to be a discussion. There has to be a pro and con. And there is less and less of that. And therefore, for instance, you get up one morning and you find that there are two uh, um, new uh, agreements with two countries. And uh, one man did it, as he said. It took him 26 days to uh, create two uh, uh, peace treaties, which are not peace treaties. But according to the unwritten constitution we have, these matters have to be discussed not only in the cabinet, they have to be discussed in parliament. Uh, when the uh, treaty was um, uh, uh, concluded with Egypt, it was brought to the, the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, for discussion and for a vote. When the Jordanian peace treaty was uh, finally agreed, it was brought to the Knesset for a vote. This the point, the point being accountability or wisdom? A mixture of both, I think. And I think it creates a situation in which if one person has the, all the knowledge and all the power, and he's also delegates to himself the authority to make the final decision and to sign the agreement and to ignore the machinery of uh, democracy, here, and I don't, I'm not saying that the actual the decision was a wrong one. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about the methodology. It means to say that in the end, this is not an agreement between the state of Israel and, and the, the state of Israel were not involved. One person was involved, the prime minister. And the prime minister in Israel, according to the system, is what you call in Latin primus inter pares. He's the first among the equals. And uh, this has been lost on the way. And this is very important and very, uh, not annoying, but it's very troublesome because uh, the constitution here is a parliamentary uh, democracy, uh, and it is different from the uh, even from the uh, democracy uh, in the United States. The United States has a constitution. We don't even have a written constitution. So you can't say, according to the constitution, you do this. It is a constitution which became a practical constitution. But in the end, if you want public uh, support, if you want uh, not full transparency, you have to have the uh, machinery of the democracy on board. But uh, how do you describe <clears throat> the um, right uh, relationship between the political echelon headed by the prime minister and the professional level, in this case, the Mossad chief? What is the point uh, in which the uh, chief uh, has to resign on conscience rather than execute a directive which he thinks may not be legitimate? 
Um, I will tell you a story. We had a very, very uh, delicate operation we were going to carry out. It involved a lot of people. It involved a lot of uh, uh, people going into uh, uh, foreign territory, uh, deep, very deep into foreign territory, and involved uh, dangers uh, which are uh, dangers of uh, something going wrong. And in this field, what is more important than anything else is how, if at all, you have a rescue plan in place. Not always can you have a rescue plan. Some of the things that we have done had no rescue plan. So in, in the balance between risk and rescue, it is not the political fallout you're talking about, but the mortal danger or the danger of being jailed to the uh, people who are carrying out not, the mission. Not only jailed, losing their lives. And I remember uh, uh, making a presentation to the Prime Minister, it was Sharon. And uh, in all of these kinds of presentations, what you always had to do is to uh, describe the operation and then to uh, point out one or two weak links where you assume that this could be a weak link. And I pointed out a weak link and it was a serious weak link. And I said, uh, this is a weak link. Uh, and uh, everybody stopped and the uh, stenographists stopped. And the, I remember it was the summer, so the, uh, uh, the, uh, the wind in the uh, room uh, uh, was whining. You could hear the whining of the, uh, of the, uh, of the machines. And then Prime Minister said to me, tell me, what do I say if this happens? What do I say? And I said, Mr. Prime Minister, it's very simple. You will say that you knew nothing about this, but the person who knew everything is the head of the Mossad, and he takes the line. So he thought a minute. He said, okay, I approve the operation, but not for the reason that the head of Mossad put forward. He was not talking to me. He was talking to the protocol. So this is the old John F. Kennedy versus Allen Dallas regarding the Bay of Pigs, yes. where Dallas took the fall. Yes, yes. So you, are, you have to realize that there are moments in history in which the head of Mossad is a fall guy, yes. Uh, and it sometimes causes bitterness, and it sometimes is very difficult. Uh, and sometimes you have to do things without consulting the prime minister, not to, to uh, countermand things, but uh, a real Mossad chief takes risks, certain risks, on his own conscience. To allow him deniability. To allow the, not only deniability, but to make sure that the uh, operation goes forward. Because what you have to, we have to weigh are three things. The threat to the people, the danger of the operation, and what is known, the value of what you are going to do. To assess the value as against the danger as against the ultimate personal relationship you have with the Prime Minister and so forth. And sometimes uh, you don't go to the Prime Minister and present him a problem like the kind I presented to him because you know in advance, you know in advance that you cannot actually place him in such a predicament. 
But the other coin is uh, a point you made uh, during your time as Mossad chief and, and later in public, and that is the obligation of Mossad and country to those people who served you and ended up in custody uh, somewhere, whether in friendly countries where they operated or obviously in enemy country. Sure. When I came to office, <clears throat> we had a man in jail. He was in a Swiss jail. There had been an operation there, a technical operation. The operation uh, went uh, foul, and the, the commander of the operation was apprehended, and it was in the Swiss prison. And first of all, we tried to get him out on jail, and jail was refused. And we had to bring in, uh, bring in the attorney general. And after a lot of discussion with the uh, chief prosecutor of, uh, of, uh, of, of the Swiss uh, Federation, who was a very tough lady, she agreed to release him on condition that the Attorney General of Israel would give her a written commitment that he would see to it that the man went back and stood trial for what he did. And uh, the uh, Attorney General, who was a friend of mine, uh, Eliakim Rubinstein, who later became Deputy President of the Israeli Supreme Court, said, I'm sending in a person into the jail, my personal representative, in which the man will commit himself to me and I objected. I was only three, two or three weeks in, in office. And I said, I don't agree. He, I am responsible. I will give you the commitment. He said, no. I said, don't you understand? You're suddenly taking a person who I've sent on service and you're turning him into a, norm, a normal, an ordinary citizen. He said, well, okay, I won't, I won't do it. And I gave in. And the man came back. And the time came for him to stand trial. And the question for was... For something which is not an offense under Israeli law, only under Swiss law. Under Swiss law. And I said, you should go back. And this became known to other people. And two veterans, veterans of the operational division, went public and sent a letter to the Israeli prime minister saying, the head of Mossad, Ephraim Halevi, is sending a person who went out to serve for the Mossad. He's sending him visibly and openly into danger of being uh, sentenced to jail in a country. This is unheard of. And the division in which this man served uh, became very restless. I had to spend a whole day talking to them, and I won't go into the details. But I had to, knowing that this might happen, and knowing that this would become public, possibly, and so on and so forth, I knew that I had to do everything I could, everything I could, and only myself could do it to make sure that ultimately, when the judge issued the judgment, the man would no go, uh, go to jail. Fascinating stories and lessons by the man who emerged from the shadows, Ephraim Levy, former chief of Mossad, former head of the Israeli National Security Council, and ambassador to NATO and the European Union. Ephraim Levy, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or follow us on social media.